Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm joined today by Chance Bonar, a PhD student from Harvard University. Hi, Chance. Hi. Chance and I actually met when we were in undergrad because we're both Minnesotans, and we discovered we actually ran cross-country together for a little while. (laughs) Today we're discussing Rethinking Gnosticism, an argument for dismantling a dubious category by Michael Williams. Williams wrote this book in 1996. This book is going to be a critique of the word Gnostic as referring to a specific group in history. Um, We're going to discuss Karen King and David Brackey's work on the same topic as we go along, but we're focusing today on Michael Williams, and Williams argues we should not use this word. But to contextualize things a little bit, Chance, who was Irenaeus? Sure. So Irenaeus was a bishop in the south of France, uh, and he's best known for writing a work called Against Heresies to attack particularly followers of Valentinus, a certain Christian teacher in Rome in the early to mid-2nd century. And he's writing kind of near the end of the 2nd century, probably around the late 170s or 180. And Valentinus is one of the figures that scholarship has traditionally referred to as a Gnostic. And Irenaeus, in attacking Valentinus, criticizes a number of other figures. Scholarship has traditionally grouped most of these figures, with a few exceptions, as Gnostics. Let's talk about what that meant for older scholarship and for people who continue to advocate the use of this term today. So two ways that scholars previously attempted to define Gnosticism are through what we're calling a genealogical approach and a typological approach. The genealogical approach is an attempt, kind of similar to what Irenaeus does, to connect certain ancient figures to one another and to to produce lineages. So, for example, Irenaeus tries to say that almost all heresies stem from a figure called Simon Magus, and this tradition is carried on by later heresiologists like Epiphanius, who also creates this kind of timeline of heresies. But even in 19th and early 20th century scholarship, we see a similar genealogical approach happening in the history of religion school. Right. Many people who belong to what we call the history of religion school viewed Gnosticism as a pre-Christian religion, something that had had its roots in Iranian or Babylonian or even Indian folk religions. And you're going to pick up on orientalizing things here, but they thought this religion came from Eastern climes and came into Christianity and merged with Christianity in the varieties that we see criticized by Irenaeus. A very famous sort of later development of this approach is Rudolf Bultmann, who thought, as we've discussed in previous episodes, thought the Gospel of John was actually sort of responding to and demythologizing this Gnostic myth. So this is one way of defining Gnosticism, that it is a distinct religious tradition that is genetically related. They have the the varieties of Gnosticism Irenaeus is criticizing have a common genetic ancestor that is, for most of these authors, imported from pre-Christian Eastern religions. Right. And even early on in this approach, uh, we start to see some cracks in this genealogical approach. Probably one of the more famous examples of this is uh, Hans Jonas, a German-Jewish philosopher who started his career by writing about Gnosticism. And Jonas uh, critiques this kind of pure genealogical approach, 
he argues that Gnosticism is not just like a sponge that's soaking up, soaking up different myths and beliefs in antiquity uh, and is kind of the sum of all of its parts, but he starts taking this kind of existentialist approach to Gnosticism and says that it's, there's something new and radical about it, that it has a particular experience of self and world um, that you don't find in these earlier genealogical connections. So even in the you know, early to mid-20th century, we start seeing some challenges to this approach. I think for Jonas, Gnosticism was sort of like the New Age movement, um, the 70s American New Age movement in the second or first century AD, that it was a sort of response to world conditions and a sort of existentialist new way of approaching religion. And so it wasn't necessarily that there was one common ancestor, but it was this group of movements that grew up in response to world conditions. I totally agree. I think that's exactly what Jonas understands it to be, is this instead of instead of seeing it as a, a pure continuation of something else in antiquity, mm-hmm. he shifts to say, this is, like you said, a new age, a new spiritual movement that's moving through and is radically changing how people are interacting with the world. Another popular way of defining Gnosticism is what we might call the typological approach. And I should pause here to say we're borrowing these categories from Karen King's book, What is Gnosticism? And we're going to talk about that book more fully later on. But the typological approach doesn't look for a genetic ancestry, a genealogy of the Gnostic religion, but instead says there's a group of movements that share enough characteristics that we can talk about them with one term usefully. So Mark Sheis has uh, has a recent book called Gnosis that gives a modern articulation of this way of approaching Gnosticism. And for Mark Sheis, there are eight features that generally characterize Gnosticism that sort of include all the people we would want to include and exclude the people we would want to exclude. And this is an experience of an otherworldly distant god, the introduction of divine beings, viewing matter as evil, a distant creator, the use of a mythological drama to describe the fall of goodness into material reality, the redemption of humanity through a spark, the tendency towards dualism, and knowledge gained from a redeemer. So these are eight characteristics that Marxist says sort of pick out groups that are useful for us to talk about history. Bracky would call this a interpretive category. So one like analogy for how this might work is our use of the word Christianity or Christian. There were different people in antiquity who may or may not have called themselves Christians or have thought that other people we call Christians were in fact Christians. But it's still useful for us to look back and say, no, Justin, Martyr, and Marcion were both Christian in some meaningful sense, even if they would have hated each other. So this brings us to Michael Williams' 1996 book, Rethinking Gnosticism. And like I said in the introduction, Williams is going to say that the word Gnostic or the word Gnosticism is not one that scholars should or can responsibly use today. There is such a thing as a bad category. Even if we recognize we're doing this ethically, anachronistically in order to be useful for scholarship, if we are grouping disparate phenomena, obfuscating distinctive characteristics by creating a group, that can be unhelpful. Um, and actually misleading. And Williams is going to say that the category Gnostic has led us to import into certain texts features that are not present in those texts and may even be contradicted by those texts because we have put them under the label of Gnostic. To take one example of this, the Gospel of Thomas, many scholars have argued, doesn't actually have the full-blown Gnostic myth of a fall and a demiurge, and things like that. But because for so long it was simply labeled as Gnostic, scholars have read that mythology 
into the Gospel of Thomas. Right. And another one of Bloom's points is that, as far as we know, there's no surviving self-designation of Gnostics among the texts that we have often designated as Gnostic. Um, ironically, you know, we, we hear about the, the, the true Gnostic in the tec- in texts of uh, Clement of Alexandria, who's generally considered more inside of the Orthodox or the Church Fathers rather than the Gnostics. But as far as texts that we found at Narcomadi, other texts that have been categorized as Gnostic, there's not as much uh, of a vested interest in those figures calling themselves Gnostics. Right, exactly. The only two figures we have who actually call themselves Gnostic in antiquity are Clement of Alexandria and Evagrius Ponticus, two people who later church fathers would claim as proto-Orthodox. Well, I guess they wouldn't have used that term. They would have viewed these people as basically Orthodox, plus or minus an originist controversy, but we're not going there. Now, Irenaeus and Epiphanius and some of the other heresiologists do say that there were people who called themselves Gnostic. And Williams, of course, knows this. Um, we're going to talk about this more in, when we talk about Brachy in a second, because Brachy is going to argue that there was, in fact, a school that called themselves Gnostic. Williams' response is that this more likely looks like a quality or a characteristic, not a socio-traditional identity. So Gnostic, as far as we can tell, was a compliment in antiquity. It was like calling yourself a scholar. And Williams is going to argue that these these other Christians who called themselves Gnostics, for them, it was like calling themselves Christian intellectuals. If I call myself today a Christian intellectual, I'm not saying I belong to a long lineage of Christian intellectuals or I participate in a particular religious movement of Christian intellectuals. I'm instead telling you something about myself. I'm saying I think of myself as an academic person who is also a Christian. Um, I'm not sure I would use that term ever, but this is what Williams thinks Gnostic was. These people viewed themselves as especially erudite, and so called themselves Gnostics, and Irenaeus and Hippolytus and Epiphanius are mocking this by calling this falsely so-called knowledge. And Clement is reclaiming this title for himself, I am a true Gnostic. That is, they are saying, you're not intellectuals, we're intellectuals. So, one of the ways that Williams attempts to dismantle Gnosticism is to demonstrate that by grouping these texts and figures together, we're equating things uh, in ways that they probably should not be equated. We're assuming that there's this larger Gnostic myth or narrative that we can import into all of these texts in the exact same way, and that they might all be secretly referring to this same narrative. Um, but his approach is an attempt to demonstrate that when we start reading these texts and figures side by side, we start to notice these discontinuities, um, and that maybe this label of Gnostic doesn't work as well as we thought. Williams is going to give us three figures whom scholars have traditionally categorized as Gnostic. The Apocryphon of John, the Justin the Gnostic, and Ptolemy, Valentinus' disciple. And then a fourth figure whom scholars have not traditionally identified as Gnostic, Marcion of Sinope, but who shares many of the traits that we traditionally associate with Gnostic. But with these four, he is trying to illustrate the diversity within what scholars have grouped as Gnostic and the fact that these don't make a coherent group, but share certain features with non-Gnostic things and certain features with Gnostic things, um, just like all the other varieties of Christianity we see in the second century. The first text that Williams talks about is the Apocrypha of John. So this is a fairly well-known text from antiquity. Uh, we have four manuscripts of this, long and short versions, so there's a lot of variety in how this story is told. And it seems that Irenaeus may have known of some 
version of this uh, when he was writing his treatise against heresies. So this text kind of runs us through the history of creation and explains how the, the true God, the invisible spirit, is distinct from but connected to the material world through these manifestations and eventually through wisdom and the creation of this this God of Genesis, Yaldabo. So the Apocryphon of John is uh, a narrative that takes place right after the resurrection where um, John encounters a Pharisee that troubles him with questions about, you know, what the Savior was doing on earth. And John starts kind of questioning himself, you know, who was the Savior's father? Why did the Savior come to the world? What is this eon, this eternal age that the Savior was talking about and alluding to? And at this point, Christ appears and attempts to answer all of these questions for John. So we have this long discussion of the invisible spirit, which is kind of the the God above everything else, uh, and this production of various other aspects of this deity that are kind of emanating from the invisible spirit till we get down to the perfect human called Adamus and his son Seth, uh, which are kind of the prototypes of the human Adam that's created later. But the narrative starts to uh, shift when the final kind of manifestation is created, this character called Wisdom, that attempts to produce a new entity and fails because of not contemplating properly on the on the divine and uh, asking consent of her kind of spiritual partner. And this produces a character called Yaldabaoth in the text, uh, which, as the text goes on, it becomes clear that this, this figure, Yaldabaoth, is supposed to be the god from the book of Genesis, the god of Israel, and you know even claims in the same way to be the only god, and attempts to make humanity along with his own henchmen, which is kind of a, an attempt to explain who the us is in the phrase, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness. So the God of Israel, the God of Genesis, is a creation from this divine entity, Sophia, her failure to understand the true God. So the God of Genesis here is a mistake. And this God of Genesis isn't aware of this plurality within the divine, but thinks it is the only and the one true God, and creates the material world. So what th- we're seeing some of the distinctive features of older typological models. We have the God of the Hebrew Bible not being a good thing, creation not being a good thing, a sort of inverted reading of the Old Testament. One other aspect of the Apocrypha of John is that the kind of divine spark is kind of implanted within human beings, uh, particularly in the case of Adam and Seth. Uh, and this becomes kind of a significant feature of the text that... Uh, those who are kind of related to Seth in some way have this divine spark that can that is important for their salvation in the future. Yes, it's the thing that's and worth their, saving. Right, it's a way that they are able to connect with um, the invisible spirit and with uh, um, kind of manifestations beyond the material world that they are kind mm-hmm. of stuck in under Yaldabaoth and his henchmen. So you might have heard of that and thought, well, what's the problem with the typological model? It sounds like typology and the Messina definition pretty well um, accounts for the Gnostic myth as presented in the Apocryphon of John. And that's not a coincidence because the Apocryphon of John presents the myth which so often scholars have read into other texts. The typology, the typological model, the definitions people have presented often are relying heavily upon this one text. So this, in some ways... Uh, presents Gnosticism as classically conceived 
for many of the traditional scholars, they viewed the Apocrypha of John as the clearest articulation of Gnosticism that we are justified then in to read into other texts. Yeah, yeah, that for a lot of other scholars, this is, this is you know, the, the Gnostic Bible par excellence. Like, this is the text that you turn to when you want to understand what Gnosticism is and to find um, the characteristics that you can import into all other readings. William's second figure does unfortunately not survive in four manuscripts like the Apocryphon of John, but is preserved only in quotations from Hippolytus, another one of these ancient heresiologists. This person is called Justin the Gnostic, not to be confused with Justin Martyr, the famous apologist, but Justin apparently wrote or used a book called Baruch. And this text, too, laid out a mythology of creation and the prehistory of the divine and redemption, etc. This myth is very, very different. So, in the beginning, there were three principles. Good, Elohim, which is one of the names the Hebrew Bible uses for God, and Edom. At first, Elohim and Edom were not aware of the existence of a third entity, the good, and they fell in love with one another and got married, and from their marriage were created the angels, and these angels created humanity. Thereafter, Elohim discovers the good and leaves Edom behind to go contemplate the good. This, understandably, upsets Edom, who, an act of revenge, introduces sin into the world to torment humanity and thereby sort of get back at Elohim. So first of all, this myth has very, very little in common with that presented in the Apocryphon of John. And creation here isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it seems to be a good thing. It's, this, it's the result of a marriage between two of the three principles, and the introduction of sin and evil in the world has nothing to do with matter in itself, but is instead this act of revenge upon Elohim for abandoning his consort or partner. And, in fact, Hippolytus tells us that Justin the Gnostic recognized marriage as a sort of good imitation of the creative act of the creation of the universe. Although they too, like most all early Christians, still held out ascetic celibacy as the ideal. For them, that would be like imitating Elohim to go contemplate the good. But here we have a very different understanding of the creation of the world. We have a very different understanding of the nature of reality and of the place of humans within that reality. And Williams is going to say it's kind of absurd to group these two texts together and say these are both part of the same religious movement. These are both Gnostic. That definitely masks over the very different takes these two texts have upon creation, cosmos, etc. A third figure that Williams introduces is Ptolemy. Uh, Ptolemy is uh, one of the students of Valentinus. Ptolemy is probably best known for writing the Letter to Flora, which is an epistle written that explains how the law was produced in the five books of Moses. So he tries to give this kind of tripartite uh, image of you know laws that were made by God alone, laws that were introduced by Moses, and laws that were introduced by the elders. But here, what's most important uh, about Ptolemy uh, is, unlike the Apocryphon of John, which had one primordial figure, the Invisible Spirit, 
And unlike Justin the Gnostic, who had three figures, good Elohim and Edom, Ptolemy has two primordial figures. Uh, one is a male entity uh, with various names like pre-beginning, pre-father, or deep, and a female entity called thought or grace or silence. And these two uh, start emanating various divine figures, especially pulling from certain terms that we see in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, mind, truth, logos, life, human, church. And at the end of all this is a similar story of wisdom trying to do something without the consent of her consort and eventually splitting in two. So we have higher wisdom that's already redeemed uh, and is kind of accepted by the other islands, and then we have this lower wisdom called Akamoth. And because of this division of wisdom mind, one of the earlier aeons that was created uh, produces a new couple, uh, Christ and the Holy Spirit. And their job is to bring all of the ions, all of the eternal realm into order and eliminate all distinction, uh, and also to kind of redeem this uh, lower wisdom figure, Achimoth. But in order to save Achimoth, Christ sends a second Christ called, called the Savior. So the Savior is the one that uh, helps uh, redeem this lower wisdom, and when the Savior uh, redeems her, he condenses her passions, and the passions themselves become the raw materials of creation. And at this point, uh, Akamoth is involved in the production of this lower demiurge, this lower creator god figure that, uh, as Williams points out, is ignorant but not evil. This demiurge creates the devil, but ironically, the devil is uh, implanted with kind of the spiritual stuff. So the devil actually knows more than the demiurge in Ptolemy's narrative. You can see why I brought on Chance for this episode. <laughs> Thanks, Chance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for Ptolemy, it's important to note that the creator of the universe, the figure with whom they would identify the god of Genesis, is not evil, as he is in the Apocryphon of John, and isn't in Justin the Gnostic, but is instead simply ignorant, which also isn't exactly true of Justin the Gnostic. So here we see different understandings of how creation comes about and uh, the status of the creator. Fourth and finally, we get Marcion of Sinope. And uh, if you want a fuller account of who this figure was, go listen to our 22nd episode on Adolf von Harnack's book about Marcion and sort of the reception and history of that book. I'm not going to go into detail here. The thing that's important about Marcion for Williams is that Marcion is not a Gnostic. As far as I know, modern scholars have, no one has ever said Marcion was a Gnostic, but Marcion does have an evil god with whom he identifies the god of Genesis and a good god who is the father of Jesus. And in service of this, or giving rise to this probably, we have a sort of value-reversed reading of the Hebrew Bible, of the Jewish scriptures, where some of the good figures are in fact bad, and some of the bad figures are in fact, according to Marcion, good. Furthermore, for Williams, Jesus, because he can participate in the creation of the evil god, is docetic. There's been a great publication we talked about in our Marcion episode by David Wilhite, where I pointed out that maybe this is actually a misreading of Tertullian, and the other heresiologists. But setting that aside, for Williams, the point of this is we have someone who is not a Gnostic sharing some of the most essential features of Gnosticism, according to the typological models, whereas Justin the Gnostic, huh, 
doesn't have those features which are purportedly essential or indicative of Gnosticism. And this should throw up red flags that maybe if we have people who don't belong to that category sharing the essential features and people who do belong to that category lacking the essential features, it may be that there is something very, very wrong with your category. Boone's presents two different solutions to the problem of defining Gnosticism. Two solutions that might improve the way that we talk about these texts and figures and it might rearrange them in different ways rather than grouping all of them under a single category of Gnosticism. One solution that Williams proposes is to use the term biblical demiurgical traditions. Also, rolls off the tongue just fine. <laughs> and by this, what Williams means is biblical in the sense that it has some relation to traditions from Jewish or Christian scripture, and demiurgical in the sense that that creation is kind of ascribed to a lower entity, not the highest God, but some lower figure. Williams finds this a more helpful solution than using Gnostic, especially because it already starts as a clearly modern category. Uh, it's, it's not an attempt to borrow an ancient self-designation or an ancient designation given by heresiologists, but is very clearly uh, a scholarly construct. Sometimes Williams is misread as arguing that there is no commonalities between these various figures called Gnostics. This is not actually what he says, because he does put forward this alternative category. Um, and we're going to see later fig- later scholars like David Brackey are going to criticize this move by Williams. He does think there are similarities between these groups that scholars have traditionally called Gnostic, but thinks it's unhelpful to borrow this ancient term. Um, but we should instead come up with a term that characterizes what they have in common, that is, they're both interested in the Bible, biblical, and they both have a demiurge, that is, something else that creates other than the one true highest God, and so we should use this term instead to designate those groups, and that, that, according to Williams, will help us avoid importing features that these texts don't all have in common, like nature being evil, or like a particular conception of Jesus. So that's proposal number one. His other proposal, and this is going to be the proposal that Bracky actually will adopt, kinda, is to discuss specific traditions as those specific traditions. That is, um, the Valentinians had a teacher named Valentinus, and then the disciples went off in different directions with slightly different developments, but they all had some continuity with Valentinus. So instead of talking about Gnostics, why don't we just talk about Valentinians? Um, same goes for Basilides. Basilides' son Isidore later wrote wrote his own books and his own development of that theology. Um, but we can refer to that group as Basilidians. And we don't need to use the word Gnostic to say that the Valentinians and Basilidians had anything in common other than the fact that, as previously noted, they're both biblical demiurgists. So Williams has two different like approaches to solving this. We talk about specific teachers and their schools when we want to be specific and we can use this clearly etic and clearly anachronistic term, biblical demiurgical, to describe the things that they do, in fact, have in common. Okay, so to give another example of how Williams is going about showing that Gnosticism is a term that is being applied too broadly to texts or figures that really don't have as much in common as scholars have previously assumed, one of his examples is examining whether or not all these so-called Gnostic texts fall within this kind of realm of uh, anti-cosmic world rejection or 
sociocultural accommodation, two of the ways that Gnosticism as a term has been used and applied to certain figures and certain texts are ones that are world-rejecting or worldly. There have been scholars that have read uh, these texts as being too eager to reject the world and you know to see the body as a prison, to, to see the necessity of escaping the body uh, and escaping this world run by you know these demonic figures and the god of Genesis is this evil deity. But on the other hand, Gnosticism as a term has also been applied to texts that seem too cozy with the world. Right? There's been claims that uh, Gnostics get too invested in kind of the larger Greco-Roman world and that they, you know, being promiscuous and immoral. So part of what Williams is trying to do is to show that there's this kind of Goldilocks solution being presented by scholars who try to say that, you know, if it's too worldly, it's Gnostic. And if it's too anti-worldly, it's Gnostic. Um, and tries to, you know, they try to present this middle ground as the place where all Orthodox Christianity should be. Right. For some late 20th century scholars, Gnostics are hippies or they're sellouts. Um, and the Orthodox are the ones that get it right nicely in the middle. And this seems to be having your cake and also eating your cake. Exactly. So, in Williams' approach to this, tries to show kind of how various texts and figures are reading figure of the Demiurge, and you know whether or not they're all dualistic. So he looks at some some texts that in which the Demiurge, this creator god figure, is sometimes evil, like the Apocryphon of John and the Paraphrase of Shem. In other cases, like Justin Gnostic, it's more ambivalent. Creation isn't necessarily a bad thing. With the case of Spinalis, um it seems like creation and this demiurgical figure is generally good, but has fallen. Sometimes creation seems to be a good thing. Ptolemy and Valentinus would fit more into that category. So Williams says, far from Gnostics being the weirdos of the ancient world who had crazy ideas about sex and food in the universe, Williams argues that, and this has been basically well-received uh, by later scholars of Gnosticism, that the Gnostic myth doesn't look like fanciful multiplication uh, and metaphysical speculation, but as sort of attempting to reduce the distance between the proto-Orthodox Christian creation myth. Yeah, there's lots of problems with what I just said, but deal with it for a second. Reducing the distance between um, the Christian myth and Platonic philosophy. Um, that is, it looks like the groups we've traditionally called Gnostic are people who are trying to explain... Jesus being a savior and the creation of the universe in terms and categories and structures that would have been familiar to the ancient intellectual from the Platonic school of thought, from how Platonism had developed into late antiquity. The other, um, and we're not going to go through all of William's chapters on this, but the other elements we get about Gnostics, of like, for instance, not totally rejecting marriage, as some Christians were doing in the second and third century, and rejecting certain forms of fasting and sort of going easy towards martyrdom. Uh, that is, not like glorifying dying for your faith. Seem to be other ways of sort of making Christianity more, more palatable to the norms of intellectual society. Why this is interesting to me is there are certain commonalities between the different groups that people have classified Gnosticism. And I think this gives us a way of accounting for those similarities without positing a genealogical relationship, that is, without positing a common 
ancestor, the founder of Gnosticism, Simon Magus, or something like that. Because if these were simply the ideas that were in the air in contemporary Platonic intellectuals, then it's really easy to see how Basilides and Valentinus might share certain things in common without actually having both studied under Simon the Magus or one of his disciples, because they were just getting this from what was middle Platonic philosophy. And I need to be really clear that this isn't something by any means particular to groups that we would, people we would call heretics, or people that would become to be called heretics. Origen, Clement, these people are doing the exact same things. And I need to make that clear. Accommodating to the intellectual trends kind of sounds like it might have a negative valence, and I don't mean it that way, because the proto-Orthodox were definitely doing the same thing. Right, and we can say the same thing even of the late 2nd century apologists, many of whom were attempting to show Roman emperors that Christians were obeying you know, Roman norms. Yep. One last point to hit on Williams before we move on. Gnostics have sometimes been grouped together because they share something called protext exegesis or value reversal. That is, when they read the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish scriptures, that they systematically or consistently make the good guys bad guys and the bad guys good guys um, in the Old Testament. William objects to this characterization on a number of grounds. First of all, value reversal or protest exegesis is not at all systematic or consistent between Gnostic exegetes. He has this chart of who says who is evil, and there isn't a consistent pattern across Gnostics, except for a few figures for whom there is already within both Christian and Jewish circles a long tradition of the problem solving of allegorical exegesis or other ways of reading the text in order to reverse who is good, who is bad, or explain away some problematic features in the Old Testament. Furthermore, value reversing readings of the Hebrew Bible is not at all unique to Gnostics. And this isn't in Williams, but my favorite example is Paul in Galatians. The Hagar and Sarah story, he totally inverts who is the good figure here and who is the bad figure here in order to get his interpretation of the story to work. So if we want to group Gnostics as people who engage in protest, exegesis, or value reversal, we're going to have to include Paul. And that's not something that most scholars would be interested or willing to do. So in 2003, uh, Karen King published What is Gnosticism, which in many ways complements Williams' argument and in some ways uh, tries to push Williams' argument even further. Both Williams and King were working on their books uh, contemporaneously, and King attempts to go a step further than Williams, not only saying that, that this category of Gnosticism needs to be dismantled and that it's being applied too broadly to texts and features and figures that don't actually deserve to be categorized together, but she goes as far as arguing that modern historical scholarship is kind of trapped in these ancient discourses of origins and essence and purity. Most of her book, What is Gnosticism, is an uh, examination of 19th and 20th century scholarship, uh, which for her uh, has two kind of main methods of trying to define Gnosticism, determining its historical origin, as we talked about the, geneal the genealogical approach or establishing its essential characteristics, the typological approach. And for King, what's most important is that Gnosticism as a term has kind of become a substitution for heresy. 
uh, in antiquity, you know, there were certain groups and certain figures that were called Gnostic by figures like Irenaeus or Epiphanius. But now in 19th and 20th century scholarship, uh, Gnosticism has become the term for defining a heretic. In, uh, in King's mind, this, this is a problem because it's using old terms in new ways. So now, you know, a Gnostic can be uh, something that seems too Catholic or too Oriental or too uh, anti-colonial. So she starts worrying about these kind of, the way that this term is being applied to newer problems in Christian thought, in Christian identity. Her first three chapters are really intellectual history, where she's looking back and showing the ways that older scholarship, Adolf von Harnack, the History of Religion School, Jonas, have uncritically adopted categories from the heresiologists. They've taken over this polemical, theologically loaded, and often not quite fair critiques of figures that Irenaeus thought were heretics, and used those to create their own categories and their own reconstructions of history. And this, of course, leads to lots of distortions. And King does really interesting work laying out how those have distorted different authors' analyses of Gnosticism in different ways. Ultimately, does she just want us to abandon using the category? Yes, so overall, King's argument is that we need to abandon using the category because the, the category of Gnosticism has shaped... Uh, the questions that we ask mm-hmm. about these texts and figures, yep. um, and that to categorize them in that way is to still play into this heresiological mode of trying to find early Christian unity, early, the essence of early Christianity, and that she thinks that this approach doesn't take into account the multiplicity of narratives in early Christianity. Absolutely. So her last two chapters are the closest parallel with Williams, where she goes through and uses the primary texts to demonstrate the diversity of beliefs within what scholars have classically called Gnosticism and how ill-fitting some of these typological models or genealogical models are for describing these different schools of thought. So if you haven't read Williams, I would strongly recommend actually reading this book backwards, starting with her note on methodology, reading the two chapters that sort of engage the primary text, and then going back and reading the intellectual history. If you have read Williams and you are persuaded by his analysis, then maybe you can read it in the order that King has written it. The final author who we simply must talk about today is David Brackey. He wrote a book called The Gnostics, where he picks up a approach that was championed quite influentially by his teacher, Bentley Layton, who wrote a number of books and articles also on Gnosticism and um, this variety of early Christian schools, that argues that there was, in fact, a specific group called Gnostics in antiquity, but that this is a smaller subset of all the texts that Irenaeus criticizes and that scholars have traditionally grouped as Gnostics. This is the subset that a lot of earlier scholars had characterized as Sethian Gnostics. So first of all, let's do his criticism of Williams and King. His problem with Williams' demiurgical biblical traditions solution is that demiurgical biblical describes all early Christian texts and virtually all contemporaneous Jewish texts. The Gospel of John has this thing called the Word that does the creating on behalf of God. That is a demiurge. (laughs) The 
epistle of the Hebrews or the book of Hebrews does the exact same thing. Justin has the two hands of God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, creating. That is Justin Martyr, where the Logos Jesus creates on behalf of God. Philo has demiurges. Demiurgical biblical traditions doesn't pick out any particular subset within Christianity, but as far as we can tell, groups basically all early Christian texts, and this pretty obviously is unhelpful. Brecky does, of course, like William's other solution. That is, let's talk about specific traditions. And he says that one of these traditions, as we're going to talk about in a second, are the Gnostics. And uh, in response to King, Brecky is concerned that King has done away with uh, large categories like Jewish Christianity and Gnosticism. And by doing so, he worries that King focuses too much on rhetorical practices and misses out on social practice. That is, just because these categories don't work, that doesn't mean that scholars shouldn't still try to understand social groups, that even if this category doesn't work, we still need something to be able to talk about. Bracky argues that we really can't do without interpretive categories. That is, etic, anachronistic categories that don't map onto ancient Christians' self-understanding. And his critique of King, he sort of introduces King by saying, and some scholars have been so critical of Gnosticism that they would attempt to do away with all categories entirely. And I think for Bracky, although he doesn't say this fully, um, but his criticism is basically, if we go too far, we basically undermine the usefulness of language. And so that's going to be a problem. Just to be clear, I think Bracky would agree with King that Gnosticism to group in all of these texts, to group in Basilidians and Valentinians, is a bad interpretive category, that it groups together unlike things or things that are it is not helpful to group and so they're not, not actually particularly far apart here. He just thinks, following his teacher Bentley Layton, that there was one group in antiquity that actually called themselves Gnostics and had certain social and like ritual practices that grouped them together in antiquity. And so it's useful for us to talk about them as such. So one example that Bracky gives to demonstrate like how groupings matter and why it matters in how we conceptualize different social groupings in antiquity through the examples of three Christian figures uh, that are in 2nd century Rome, more or less at the same time, uh, Marcion, Justin, and Valentinus. So with these three figures, what Bracky does is try to demonstrate some similarities that these figures have to one another. Um, you know, they're all practicing Eucharist in some way, they're all practicing baptism in some way, um, but none of these figures fit Bracky's model of the, the Sethian Gnostic, right? None of them are, are considering themselves the seed of Seth or the immovable race terms often associated with Sethian figures. And by doing so, what Bracky is trying to, trying to demonstrate is that you know, scholars have labeled Justin as orthodox or proto-orthodox. Marxian is kind of just this general heretical figure kind of has it in his own camp, whereas Valentinus is often categorized as Gnostic or now Valentinian. And what he's trying to do is to show that instead of using those categories, Gnostic, Orthodox, Marcionite, if we look at them in their social location, second century Rome, we might see similarities and differences between these figures differently than if we just use these broader theological interpretive categories. Mm -hmm. So Bracchi is going to argue that Sethians actually did in antiquity call themselves Gnostics. And he's using the heresiological data to show this. Irenaeus writes his book against the Gnostics falsely so-called, 
Clement wants to claim to be the true Gnostic. They are polemical things trying to reappropriate or sort of criticize other people's use of a term that was generally deemed positive. One of my qualms with Bracky's analysis is he doesn't actually fully engage William's proposal that Gnostic wasn't a socio-traditional identifier, but was still was this characteristic or quality identifier um, that is like Christian intellectual rather than Baptist. Baptist would be the socio-traditional and intellectual would be just sort of a quality or characteristic. It seems to me that to make his case, he needs to exclude this possibility, especially considering all of the so-called Gnostic texts or the Sethian texts that we've recovered omit this term Gnostic. And they do use other terms to refer to themselves. They call themselves the seed of Seth, and they call themselves the immovable race, um, and things like that. So they have names for themselves, and it's not Gnostic. So it seems to me there's a hurdle here that Bracky hasn't jumped over. It may be that his case still holds, that the heresiological sort of wrestling with this term does evince that some people called themselves this. And so maybe it's still a useful term for us to use, but I'm not fully persuaded that that case has actually been made. So one final image that Bracky works with to help us rethink early Christianity and early Christian diversity is the horse race model. So for much of Christian history, Irenaeus's model of Christian unity and diversity has been dominant. Uh, and by that, I mean this model of Jesus and the apostles are kind of the apostolic origins of Christianity, this, this kind of pure orthodoxy right at the beginning uh, and that from that, we have diversity that comes from that unity. We have, you know, outside, we have these external Greek forces or, you know, Hellenic forces that are poisoning this pure origin of Christianity. So you start with unity and you end up with diversity. And this model was dominant for much of Christian history and was actually flipped on its head in the 20th century by a figure named Walter Bauer. We'll have an episode on that. Out. So what Walter Bauer does is, is actually orthodoxy comes after heresy, and that after that point, we have the production of kind of this orthodox lineage, these correct practices, these correct beliefs. And that's where um, many scholars still sit today, within that the general approach that Walter Bauer presented us with. One of the most famous examples of that is Bart Ehrman. Bracky is specifically reacting to Bart Ehrman's coinage of the term proto-orthodox, that is, the, the people that would eventually be claimed as orthodox within later Christian tradition. So part of Bracky's approach to this is to use this kind of well-known horse race analogy, that you know each of these different Christian groups is a horse in horse race, and they're all competing, right? We have the proto-orthodox horse, the Sethian Gnostic horse, the Valentinian horse, the Marcionite horse, um, and we know at the end that the orthodox horse wins. But what Bracky does is says this horse race analogy goes too far because it assumes that these horses uh, exist as stable entities and that they aren't being constantly produced and reconstructed. He wants to say it's not as easy as saying that the proto-Orthodox horse won, but rather that there's this kind of constant maintenance that needs to happen in order to make that narrative work. Right. Justin, for instance, would be claimed as proto-Orthodox, but his conception of the divinity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit would not have been acceptable to 4th century Orthodox Christians. So it's probably problematic to identify figures in antiquity as themselves proto-Orthodox. I am myself partial towards 
uh, cutting up the horses a little bit. Oh, that's a horrible metaphor. But that <laughs> is talking about particular beliefs as the sort of things that would later win out and doing this as a self-conscious anachronism. Um, it is not inevitable that this particular conception of the incarnation would have won, but I think it is useful as a historian to look back and say, okay, we can see the first people that start advocating this in different ways and how that developed, because as historians were making narratives and avoiding anachronism is, I mean, at best a quixotic enterprise. If we if we cut up the horse like that, at least then we're getting at specific practices, and it's, yep. it's it seems more fair to trace practices and how they develop rather than to kind of trace these still kind of fairly large categories um, of people and, and people with texts. Absolutely. Okay, so big picture, Irenaeus criticizes a bunch of people as falsely so-called Gnostics. Scholarship in the 19th and early 20th century came up with different ways to define Gnostic, genealogical approaches and typological approaches. Michael Williams wrote a book arguing these figures are too diverse to be classified in this way, and that scholars have misrepresented the data by reading the Apocryphon of John into other texts, that instead we should use biblical dimergical and talk about specific identifiable traditions. Karen King pushed it even further, saying biblical demiurgical illegitimately groups things, and these earlier scholars, by talking about Gnostic as a category, having any category that includes all of these figures, are inappropriately borrowing from the heresiological discourse. David Brackey basically agrees with Karen King's critique of the big group Gnostic that encompasses all of these texts, but pushes sort of against previous scholarship, but taking up Bentley Layton's approach, argues there was one specific particular group that would have identified themselves as Gnostics, the so-called Sethians, and we should refer to other groups by how they identified themselves, a semi-emic term. And at least in our reconstruction of the history of scholarship, that's where we're going to leave you today. Okay. Thank you, Chance, so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. have a new Twitter handle. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at NT Review Pod.